Welcome to At the Crossroads Church weekly podcast. Our hope is that you will grow in your walk with God and be blessed and encouraged in your daily lives as you listen. You can visit us at our website at atthecrossroads.ca. Awesome. Why don't we stand and we're just going to pray. So good to be together, isn't it? So, and those of you that's online, you can follow along with the prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for this great Uh, opportunity for us to get together and to search your word and to search for truth. God, I ask that you'd speak to us and change us, challenge us to to become more and more like you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. So uh, right now we're in the middle of a series called Winning the War Within. Now, how many know that Jesus won the war? Anybody know that? So, So he's won the war. But we're talking about winning the war within. We're talking about within our thought life. We're talking about where the battlefield really is, and, you know, Jesus has set us free. He's delivered us from sin, but how many know that we're tempted by the enemy? The enemy comes to tempt us, and he does that uh, one very popular way is through thought. And so we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 5, which is our key verse for this teaching. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And then it goes to say what the strongholds are, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against knowledge of God, and bringing every thought, say every thought, into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And uh, when we look at the Greek word for that, uh, imaginations, this is a word we see in the King James, it actually speaks of thought. Um, it's talking about your reasoning, computation, uh, your imagination. Uh, the word imagination is the faculty or action of forming new ideas. How many know the enemy would want you to have new ideas that are contrary to God's ideas? Okay. Or images or concepts of external objects not present to the senses. And so God, so the enemy would like to give you imaginations. He wants you to daydream and you know think about things you shouldn't think about. How many know that you know thought can be just interjected that way? But today we're covering this topic of self-pity. And self-pity is an interesting topic because no one wants to admit that they have ever dealt with that. So we we say we're going to talk about self-pity, and you might be thinking, well, I'm glad my husband's here. It's great. It's going to be for him. Or Susie over there, I think it's good for her. Uh, But you know what? God, we can all at some point in life deal with self-pity, and it's good to recognize it so that it can never form a stronghold um, in our lives. And so the definition of self-pity is is an emotion. So self-pity is really an emotion uh, directed towards others with the goal of attracting attracting attention, empathy, or help. Okay? And one in which the subject feels sorry for themselves or feels pity for themselves. And so self-pity can be one of the most dangerous emotions that you can experience. Okay? And I'm talking about, when I talk about having self-pity, I'm talking about habitually creating a pattern of thinking about yourself all the time. And self-pity gives you an excuse for not applying yourself. You know, if you don't want to apply yourself, well, you can find a thousand reasons under the sun. While depression makes you unable to apply yourself, even though you want to apply yourself. So if someone is depressed, it's kind of like they're, they're just under this yoke, and it's just they can't apply themselves, and they need help, and they need God, and they need prayer. But self-pity gives you excuses, right? And so this topic is very interesting. Self-pity makes you feel special. 
It can become a habitual pattern or addiction. And if it's not dealt with, it becomes part of your personality. You can become a very self-focused person. And self-pity starts as a way of thinking but can open the door to an evil spirit, as we'll get into as we move along. Self-pity is one of the most detrimental emotions that robs so many of us of taking action, as well as of our accomplishments. Sadly, most of the time, we don't even know that we're indulging in this self-indulgent and useless emotion. Okay? So how does self-pity respond? Well, self-pity always responds as a victim. It always responds as a victim. Now, some people, you might be one of them, have been victimized and have suffered abuse. In such case, there is need for self-care and self-focus for the purpose of receiving healing and restoration. So I'm not talking about if you've, you have been abused, if you have been a victim of something, there's healing in Christ. Amen? And so, so we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is habitual, ongoing mindset, okay, that through the negative storms of life, we get into the self-pity focus, okay? How many know Jesus says, in this world, you will have troubles, amen? Doesn't he say that? So we need to realize we're going to have troubles in lives, and we're going to have valleys, and we're going to have mountaintops, and it's in those valleys and those times where we can easily give ourselves over to self-pity and focus on our pain and our hurt instead of focusing on the goodness of God. We all get to that place at times. And we see how the children of Israel were delivered by God from Egypt. So, you know, God delivered them through Moses from Egypt under the Pharaoh's oppression. He takes them out of there, and his purpose is to bring them to the promised land. And that was the prophecy, that they were going to be delivered, and they were going to be taken to the promised land. But how many know there was a desert, a temporary desert, between the promised land and where they were? And so they were going through the, the desert, and, and, and they got to a place where they were hungry. And God, in his mercy, he says, I'm going to feed them, and I'm going to give them angel food. I'm going to give them manna from heaven. And he fed them manna from heaven. He gave them water that was struck, came out of a rock. God was taking care of their needs. But I want to say this. Satan will always want you to see the glass half empty instead of seeing the glass half full. And the thing that was really happening was God was showing compassion and mercy because two million people going through the valley get hungry. Guess what they're going to eat if they get hungry? They're going to eat all the livestock they took from Egypt. So God in his mercy is saying, you know what? I'm going to give them some manna, help them out. It's not going to be what they really, really want, but it will meet their need. So when they get to the promised land, they're going to be prosperous. But enemy wants you to look at the glass half empty instead of looking at half full. All right? And, and they were stuck in a temporary situation. I want you to say temporary. Like we all get stuck in temporary situations. And in those temporary times, God tends to meet our needs, but he doesn't meet our wants. There's times in life where he just meets our needs. And th the reason why he does that is so that we can, he's testing our faith. He's wanting to build character in us. And it's our we have to make a decision. Are we going to get self-focused on what we really, really want? Or are we going to be content that God's meeting our needs? Because there are temporary moments, there's times in life where we find ourselves in the valley. We find ourselves in, in a financial difficult time. How many have been there? And, and it's like God meets our needs and doesn't necessarily meet our wants. 
But we know that God said to them, listen, you're going to inherit houses you didn't build. You're going to inherit vineyards you didn't plant. I have, I'm, gonna, I'm not only going to meet your needs, I'm going to give you your wants, but you're going to go through a valley. You're going to go through a desert in the process. And so the people were accusing Moses and God of not caring for them. God was providing manna so they could keep their livestock for the promised land, and, and they began to accuse God of holding back on them. They gave in to self-pity. Poor, poor us. Man, it would have been better. We were slaves in Egypt, but at least we had leeks and cucumbers. But all we have here, you know, we were slaves to Egypt. Now we're slaves to Moses and his God, and all we have is this useless manna. And they yielded to self-pity. And God's heart was torn because of it. Because he was caring for them. He was taking care of them. Temporary. You know, how many have ever been on a temporary diet? A few of us have. We understand, right? And the only reason you do it is because you know it's going to end. It's like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to lose so many pounds, and then I'm going to change my diet, right? They were in a temporary situation for their benefit. And they didn't recognize it. Satan accused God of holding out and causing suffering when, in fact, he was setting Israel up for success. So the people began to cry, oh, God, give us meat. We want meat. We can't eat this useless man. And they complained for meat. I guess there wasn't many vegetarians in Israel. They wanted their meat. And so God said, okay, I'll send quail. And he sent them quail, and he had, they had enough to eat for a month. And then in Numbers chapter 11, verse 21 to 23, Moses responded to the Lord because the Lord said, I'll give them quail. He said, there's 600 foot soldiers here with me, and yet you say, I will give them meat for a whole month? Even if we butchered all of our flocks and all of our herds, would that satisfy them? Even if we caught all the fish in the sea, would that be enough? Two million people are a lot of people. And then the Lord said to Moses, my arm has not lost its power. You will see whether or not my word comes true. And then the Lord sent quail for the people to eat. But you see, the self-pity caused them to accuse God and accuse others as being the source of the problem instead of taking responsibility for their own life. You know, how does self-pity act? Well, we're going to bring up a bunch of stuff here. Self-pity acts um, as an anesthesia. And if you take an anesthesia so you don't feel the pain, you know, if you, anyone ever got stitches, you know, and once the needle takes in, then you don't feel you don't feel the stitches, right? Because you, you've got an anesthesia that takes away the pain. Self-pity makes other people and situations going on around you to be the source of your problem. So self-pity will keep you from recognizing the issues in your life that contribute to your problem. So if you're focused on yourself and say, well, my, I'm the way I am, or I do what I do because my wife makes me mad, or I do what I do because my dad did this to me, and that's that, what you're doing, it's, it's like an anesthesia because you don't want to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit that is only going to lead you to repentance, which is going to lead you to refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And so we, I don't want to feel guilty. Do you know why we feel guilty? Because we are guilty. <laughs> right? Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn us, but he allows us to feel guilty sometimes. So if you've done something wrong and you blame everybody else, it's an anesthesia. I'm not going to feel the pain. And you go into your quiet place and you blame everyone. And the one who suffers is you because you're not willing to say, Lord, I have a wrong attitude. I take responsibility for my life. Right? 
And then the Lord says, yeah, I'll take that from you, and here's some peace. Here's the Holy Spirit. Amen. But the enemy wants us to be focused on ourselves, you know. You know, self-pity acts like a mood-altering substance. It builds a wall between you and your failure. If, if you look, if you do a study on people who are millionaires, who have made it in society, they'll tell you the same story. I failed 100 times. I failed 1,000 times, you know. And I just kept getting up and say, I'll try another way. I'll try another way. They didn't say, well, I failed because, you know, this and that and this person. People that think that way will never go to where God's called them to go. Amen? It builds a wall between you and your failure. Is a way of thinking that is highly, highly addictive. Self-pity is so addictive because it gives us a momentary pleasure of being supported and cared for and emotionally pampered. It is, because I don't know about you, but when I go talk to people and I'm having a bad day and I can come over and say, Neil, you know, I'm having a bad day today and this happened to me. And, and Neil puts his arm on my shoulder and goes, oh, I feel for you, brother. That's terrible that you have to. I'm feeling, yeah, it feels good. Dopamine is just like flowing. I'm like, oh, I feel good. Somebody cares about my emotional state. And, and it becomes addictive. And some people are like that. They just, they, it's all about all their troubles and all their stress. And then everyone goes, oh. And they're like, oh. People care about me. Right? And it's very addictive to have that behavior. Anything that we set our affections on repeatedly can be addictive. If you set your affection on yourself, it can become addictive. And self-pity will open the door for evil spirits to influence your life. We see in James chapter 3. Verse 14 to 16, but, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking, right? Self-seeking is really self-pity in a sense. If you have it in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not ascend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. We're, not to, we're supposed to have the same mind of Christ, not thinking about ourselves, but thinking about others. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And so that's why we understand that, you know, self-pity takes the victim's role and will affect every level in society, whether you're a king or you're a peasant, whether you're educated or you can't read and write, self-pity will come knocking at your door. Amen? Like, you know, I love this in 1 Kings 21. We see the king. This is the king. Now, there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel. He owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab the Samaritan. And one day Ahab said to Naboth, Since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it and use it as a vegetable garden. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I'll even pay you for it. But Naboth replied, Hey, been in the family for years. That's my paraphrase. Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth answered. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and he refused to eat. I'm not eating my cornflakes tonight because I can't have my way and I want that vineyard and Naboth won't give it. And through a pity party, faced the wall and would not talk to him. A king. And look what happens here. And so Ahab went home, he did this, and his wonderful wife Jezebel 
which we're not going to preach about today because we spent a lot of time there. Comes in and said, what's the matter, Jezebel asked. What made you so upset that you're not eating? And I asked, I asked Naboth to sell me the vineyard or trade it, but he refused, Ahab told me. He won't give me what I want. Are you the king of Israel or not, Jezebel demanded. Get up, eat something, and don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. You know, when we talk, and this is just a little bonus, when we talk about Jezebel spirits, we talk about a spirit. How many of you have ever heard the term Jezebel spirit? Is, is control and manipulation. If you're a person who allows self-pity to be part of your life, you're always thinking about, oh, poor me and the things that are going on in my life, you are a target for a Jezebel spirit to control and manipulate your life. But when you get to a place where I'm not going to have self-pity, I'm going to focus on Christ, not on me. That Jezebel spirit won't have the influence she could have, okay? Just this is a little bonus. So here's another thing. We'll keep going with our points here. Self-pity will not deal with the present problem. Is self-comforting. Always pays attention and focuses on itself. Is self-soothing. Makes others feel guilty for not stooping towards it. And emotional manipulation. And if you've ever dealt with this where you've talked to somebody and they're pouring out all their problems and, you know, how the whole world's falling apart and everything's just evil. And you're like, you know, I, I don't really have time to listen right now. They get angry. They're like, you got to listen to me. You got to listen. You don't understand. No, I just don't have time for this. No, but you don't understand. It, it's, it's emotionally draining. It's emotional manipulation. And you feel guilty if you don't stoop to it. Right? Now, we ha the Bible says we're to be compassionate and care for people. So if they come and they share, don't go, I'm not listening. You're in self-pity. Don't do that. Because that's not, that's not good. But just recognize that we have to show compassion to people, but we don't have, yeah, we could go deeper on that. But let's keep moving here. Okay, next one. Controls others, always having to place blame on something or someone. Okay? Self-pity is a step away from anger if people won't take time to listen. Okay? Doesn't want true help, just sympathy for, uh, from others. Okay, And that's how you see that self-pity is working in, in someone's life, is if you're trying to give them advice and trying to help them lovingly, and they're like, no, you don't understand. You're like, yeah, but the Bible says if you would do this, and if you apply this, it will work. Hey, it worked for my life. Why don't you try? Well, it won't work for me. You, do, you just don't understand what I'm going through. Yes, it will work. No, no, you don't understand. You know what I'm saying? And that's what self-pity does. Okay? always retreats, always isolates, plays on your love, welcomes sickness so focus will be on self, always wants to be seen as small, there's a false humility, doesn't want to hear a voice other than its own, needs to be convinced and will not trust. This is what self-pity does in a person. If there is a spirit with self in front of it, self-rejection, self-righteousness, self-bitterness, it's a sign that self-idolatry is present. Okay? So self-pity says, you, you know, self is right. Self-pity says, I'm right, and I'm going to continue to protect myself. I'm not going to open up because I could get hurt again. It says all other ideas from God or others are beneath it. And that's self-idolatry, right? King Saul was guilty of self-idolatry. 
We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 12. So the prophet's looking for, looking for Saul, and look what happens here. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went down to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Now, that's messed up, guys. Like, really? Okay? He went to set up a monument to himself, and then he went to Gilgal. So then Samuel confronts him in chapter 15, verse 17, and Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. Those two verses together tells me that if you make everything all about you, self-idolatry, it's usually a sign of insecurity in yourself. Amen? We know Saul was insecure. He was a foot taller than everybody else, but on the inside, he was insecure. And you know where that insecurity stems from? It's from not knowing the love of the Father, not knowing that God is for you and not against you, not knowing that he has washed you with his blood, that you're the head and not the tail, you're above and not beneath. He has delivered you. And so if you listen to thoughts that are contrary to what the Scripture says about how awesome you are in the eyes of God, you get insecure. And that opens the door for self-pity. Does that make sense? And this is where Saul was living. Okay? When is it okay to be self-focused? Scripturally, and I, I want you to get this because this is so important. When we're examining our hearts before the Lord for the purpose of repentance and restoration with God and with others. The biggest clue that self-pity is not of God is the word self, right? Anytime we are focused on ourselves other than on, for self-examination leading to repentance, we are in the territory of the flesh. Our sinful flesh is the enemy of the spirit, and if we surrender our lives to Christ, our old nature is crucified with him, Galatians 2.20. The selfish, sinful part of our lives no longer needs to dominate. When self is dominant, God is not. We, in fact, in fact, have become our own gods. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the moment you have a self at all, there's a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God. In fact, that was the sin of Satan, and that was the sin he taught the human race. Put yourself on the throne. It's all about you and your problems. Amen? It's not the it's a tickle, tickle your ear sermon, right? But it's the truth. And self-pity has some attributes we have to look at. So number one is stubbornness. Stubbornness. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, you know, the prophet is still dealing with Saul. He says, for rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so there was a stubbornness in the self-pity that Saul worked with. Number two, self-pity is the highest form of pride. In 1 Peter 5, verse 5 and 6, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. So look at your neighbor and say, submit to me. No, don't do that. I'm just kidding. No, don't do that. That's a joke. 
But God is saying, like, we gotta, we got to submit and serve and love and care for one another. Forget this dominating and control, and they're not listening to me, and I, you know, nobody cares, and, you know, forget that stuff, right? Be submissive for one another. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen, I need grace in my life. His mercy is new every morning, and I need his grace, and I need his mercy, and I need his loving tender kindness, and I need his forgiveness. And guess what? If I carry around self-pity, I shut all of that out from my life. If I'm focused on myself, he can't focus on me. If I focus on him, he focuses on me. And that's where God wants us to live. Self-pity is the highest form of pride. And the reason people become one with self-pity, okay, is not because of unworthiness, but because of unapplauded pride. And, and like it's it's a false humility, and and we talk about being a true or a false martyr. I'm going to bring that up on the slide. Let's let's look at the difference. A true martyr, um, it's always for others. The benefit is the body of Christ. Um, you lay down your life, uh, you sacrifice with joy. And so we read how Paul talks about how many times he received lashes and he was shipwrecked and he was persecuted and people, false Christians took advantage of him. And he talks about that and he says, but he said, I do all this with joy. Why? Because he was doing it to benefit the body of Christ, to benefit the kingdom. And he did it with joy. That's a true martyr. A false martyr is someone who does it for the benefit of um, making sacrifices for sympathy. There's a difference. So how do we defeat self-pity? We, we you know, painted a picture of how ugly this thing is, but how do we defeat it? How do we say, no, it's not going to have a place in my life? And here's the thing. By choosing to be grateful and thankful and joyful. By, by choosing to be thankful. Here's the thing. The children, in, the children of Israel are in the desert. They're in a temporary situation. They're going through a dark time. Their needs are being met. They're not getting their wants. But instead of being thankful for the manna, they began to complain about the manna. Okay? And I want to say this. As we're going through our life, as we're going through the, the trials of life, as we're going through situations, we need to learn to be thankful in all things. Amen? We have to choose to be grateful. We have to choose to be thankful. We need to choose to be joyful in these situations. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Dear brothers and sisters, okay, look what it says. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. It's an opportunity to be joyful and to be grateful because guess what? When you do, you pass the test, and when you pass the test, God takes care of the rest. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Be thankful in some of your circumstances. No, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And so people come and say, Pastor, I don't know. Am I supposed to be a missionary in India, or am I supposed to be on the worship team, or am I supposed to marry this person? Listen, I don't know about that. I know this. If you want to be in the perfect will of Christ Jesus, be thankful, and you'll be in the center of his will. And he'll open the doors that need to open and shut the doors that need to shut. Amen? The will of God is not about a destination. It's about an attitude of the heart. Amen? Romans 1.21, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. If you want your thoughts to wander away from the Word of God, stop being thankful. Your thoughts become futile. 
But we're a people that won't do that. We decide to thank God and worship God and praise Him for the good things in our lives. Instead of focusing on the glass half empty, the glass is half full. And there's more to come. Amen? Philippians chapter 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing but in some of the things by prayer and supplication. No, but in everything, right? Let's say it together. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. So here's the thing. We alone have to make a decision to take action and defeat self-pity, right? Self-pity is an enemy of choice, and you will become what you think. You know, I like to, Henry Wright used to say this about self-pity, and I I love this quote. He said, self-pity is a superglue of hell that keeps us bound to the past. It keeps you bound to the past. And God wants you to, to walk in the newness of life. Walk who you are in Christ. Know your identity. You know, forget about yesterday. Self-pity keeps you in yesterday. And one last quote before we close. I like this. Self-pity is not tenderness to oneself. Okay? As you would think, but it's an abusiveness that causes great stress and harm. It act- it's actually a breaking of the order of the first commandment. In placing oneself higher in importance than the creator God. This obsession with self interferes with God's development of righteousness and character in our lives. So, okay, and so, so get this. Self-love is important, but only in the right sequence. Got to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So love God, love yourself, love others. And when we love ourselves, first, we break the sequence of the order. And there's a mess. Does that make sense? And so as we're closing uh, the service today, we talk a lot about the R's to freedom. I'm just going to bring them up one at a time here. The first art of freedom is recognize the problem. You have to recognize that maybe, maybe I got some self-pity in my life. You know, maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you have no issue with self-pity and you don't understand people who do, and that's okay. But maybe you're sitting here and say, you know what, I struggle with this sometimes. And the first art here is recognize the problem. Say, this is a problem I have. And then the second thing is take responsibility. Take responsibility. Say, you know what? I'm not, and this is hard with self-pity, because with self-pity, you're like, yes, Lord, I'm sorry that I'm feeling sorry for myself. But it's because my mother, do you know what my mother said to me yesterday? <laughs> See, you got to break the pattern. Recognize the problem. Take responsibility. Say, God, I realize that, you know what, I haven't always had it easy, but, Lord, I take responsibility for the way I'm acting. Because one day I'm going to stand before you, give an account for my life, and I can't blame everybody else. So better practice now taking responsibility. Lord, I take responsibility for my attitude. I take responsibility for my life. And I take responsibility for, like, yielding to self-pity, you know? And, and I'll tell you a story because for four years now, every summer I've been looking at Gigi to buy a boat. I've been wanting to have a boat. I, I lo- About 15 years ago when we first lived in this area, my cousin came down he said to me, he said, it's a sin to live by the Great Lakes and not have a boat. And I said, yeah, I don't want to be a sinner. I better repent and get a boat. So 
never had the money for a boat. The last couple of years, three or four years, I've had a little bit of, a little bit of money to buy a used boat. I'm like, I want to buy a boat. And then I look on Kijiji, and you know, uh, you know, it would sell. And then the next year, I'm looking at a boat, and then you know, there was some, you know, some expenses that came up that I had to, to take care of, and I can't get a boat this year. So four years. So finally, I'm set on getting a boat. I'm looking for a boat. And the sale, the guy sold it out from under me, and I was, I went into self pity, and I didn't realize it. My kids and my wife pointed out that I was moping around. Everybody's got a boat but me, you know. And I was so like, and I was depressed for like three days. Camilla counted this, and and finally the Holy Spirit says, "You're in self pity. Get in order." And I'm like, "What?" And I realized, yeah, I was, and 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 I was like actually moping around like King Ahab not wanting to eat and everything else, just being silly. But it's that easy to fall into that. And then I said, God, forgive me. I'm being stupid and being silly. Ask God to forgive me. And then the Lord provided me with a boat, right? But, but you know, we can all fall into it. So it's just recognizing and saying, no, I'm not going to fall into that anymore. Number three, we repent. Number four, we renounce it. Just say, I'm not going to go there anymore. You're not part of my life, self-pity. And we remove it from our lives and say, in the name of Jesus... We cast you out, and we resist it when it tries to come back. Because, you know, how many know that it'll come back when you're having another tough day, and you're going to start to feel, and you say, no, 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 I'm not going to give into that. That's self-pity, right? And then we, uh, we rejoice, being thankful, and then go restore somebody else and love on somebody else. Amen? And that's the victory. And you know what? Right now, Satan, you know, there's tragic, there's tragic things that have happened in our past and our nations with... Um, and there's a lot. Of, there's been a lot of racism. There's been, you know, our first first nations of the uh, people. Like, I mean, there's so much. But we don't want to be victims. We want to be victors. We can't be defined from our by our past. We have to move forward with what God has, Amen. For our lives. And so, Father, let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Father, I pray for your people. God, I pray for myself. Lord, if there's any self pity in our lives, God, we 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 repent and we just say, God. We don't want to be people who are focused on ourselves. We just lay that at the foot of the cross, and we just cast it out of our lives. And, and Father, we just renounce listening to those thought patterns. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us and restore us in Jesus' name. You're such a good Father, and we're so thankful. Even in dark times, even in hard times, we can focus on the good that you're doing in our lives. And we choose to do that today. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed our message. If you are in the Quinty West area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning at 24 Dundas Street West, Trenton, Ontario. Check out our service times on our website at thecrossroads.ca.